Today's podcast is brought to you by Something Blue by Anita Kay, specializing in wedding and event photography. Visit her page on Facebook. For those in love, capture those memories with Something Blue by Anita Kay. It's really big. It's getting bigger and bigger. My love bigger than a candle this has got to be much, much, much bigger. The biggest fool. This is probably the biggest thing I ever got into. That's big, big, big. The Unbridled Enthusiasm Podcast with Mark Pulo starts now. We can't give them this much power in the cartoon world. A podcast, and I was told that if I did your podcast that I would, you know, advance to the next level. And we're podcasting and photographizing in front of the great... The worst gigs of their life are, are with, because of Mark Pulo's. <laughs> Anyone want a husband? Free, free to a home. Now it doesn't even have to be a good home, just free to a home. Ladies and gentlemen, Andre the Giant would like to do his impression of Willie Nelson. Suck yourself dry! Alright. Hello folks and welcome back to the Unbridled Enthusiasm Podcast. I am your host, Mark Poulos. It's good to be back. On the podcast today, we're going to be talking something that has captured the public in the last couple weeks. A little documentary on Netflix called Making a Murderer. And uh, obviously if you have not watched all ten episodes of it, there's going to be some spoilers in here if you have not watched it. So shut this down. Watch all ten hours of it and come back so uh, you can get the most out of this podcast. So, or you can listen to this and get a recap of the whole thing without actually having to watch it. So, basically what the show is about is about this guy, Stephen Avery, that lived in uh, Manitowoc, Wisconsin. And he was wrongfully convicted of a rape that uh, he did not commit. And a lot of questions regarding his uh, conviction. There was a lot of evidence that was left out. And I think the most glaring thing was the guy that actually ended up doing the crime and he got arrested for it. He looked a lot like Stephen Avery. And when they arrested him in a different county and he confessed to doing the crime in Manitowoc, they basically called over there and was like, listen, you've got a guy in custody that this guy is... um, He's confessing to that crime, so you should let him out of jail. And that phone call came in like something crazy like four years before he actually got exonerated by DNA evidence but so he does 18 years for this rape they retest the DNA evidence or test it first of all like I don't know if they actually tested it run it through the system and it gets a hit on this guy that's already been arrested And so they release him, and it's like this big to-do, and he's all excited, and 
doing press conferences and everything. And then he decides to go after the police, the prosecutors, the DA. He decides to basically take on the justice system in Manitowoc County. And I don't know about you, but, like, I was watching that, and I was like, on one hand, I was like, good, fuck them. Like, take them to town, take them to task. But then after, like, five minutes, I was like, this is going to bite them in the ass at some point. (laughs) Because you just can't do that. You can't make cops look stupid because they have the power and the authority to, like, fuck with your life, you know? And this, this whole story was kind of close to my heart because a lot of people don't know, but in 2004, I was accused of a crime that I did not do. And I don't really want to get into the specifics of it because I've kind of put it behind me. But let's just say, like, I've been in, like, Stephen Avery's shoes where it was a situation where someone kind of needed a fall guy And I've talked about it before, like, being a comedian by ourselves, like, out on the road, working and going to these strange cities, and basically being by ourselves, we're very, like, exposed and very vulnerable, because we're by ourselves, you know? And, like, back when I was single, I always got warnings from people to, like... You know, just be careful who you're talking to and stuff. Because it's like, even if you're talking to, like, an innocent conversation after the show with a woman, you know, that might be somebody's ex or somebody's separated wife or whatever, you know. And these good old boys get drunk and they get jealous and, and shit gets bad real fast. So basically, I had done some shows in the city... And when I got home, I got a phone call from the police up there claiming that I was being accused of this thing. And it was terrifying because I knew I didn't do anything. But here's an authority figure calling me on the phone telling me that I'm in trouble. And it's like, when you hang up the phone, you're like, well, what the fuck do I do now? Like... I know I didn't do this, but for some reason, they believe that I did this. And, you know, there's no, there's no easy eject button out of that. Like, once that bell has been rung, like, there's a process to it, you know? It's like, I called my dad, and I was pretty out of sorts, because I'm like, what the fuck? And he told me to call our family attorney, so I called him, and And he was giving me advice, but he was like, I don't have a license to practice in that state, but here's some names of people that I know that could help you. So, like, I just started making phone calls, and I talked to this one lawyer, and and he basically said, you know, if you want me to take over your case and start helping you, like, you have to send me, like, $5,000 as a retainer. And I was like, holy shit, like, we're doing this, you know? So I had to send him $5,000. I had to, like, write this, like, 50-page detailed thing of, like, every moment that I was in 
the town and I had to mail that to him and he kept telling me like just be ready because they will arrest you just for the mere option of getting you to their police department so they can interrogate you and he goes but the nice thing is that you've retained me as counsel so when you do get arrested and they give you the one phone call just call me tell them you want your lawyer and don't answer any questions and you know it's like he says that and and it seems like well that's a perfectly easy thing to do right you know but it's like you watch the shit in this making a murderer thing especially the uh, Brandon Dassey stuff where they're just kind of chatting with him like it's all fun and games but then it turns into like we're actually interrogating you now like this is all being taped this is all going to be used against you and all that kind of stuff and it is funny when I watch shit like the first 48 and stuff like that like people talk a lot before they actually say like I want a lawyer but so I got the lawyer and and you know they're pushing through all the evidence and I'm just like for two months I'm waiting for the phone call like you know they're coming to the house to get you or whatever and you know I was still touring at the time so my lawyer was like you know just be careful driving you know don't speed don't do any erratic things make sure all the lights on your car are working because you know if they pull me over and and they've put the arrest warrant out across the uh the ticker tape or whatever like I'd get arrested and extradited back to wherever this crime was and it was fucking terrifying man it was like the worst two months of my life just every just imagine that like every day waking up and thinking to yourself is this the day that I get arrested and processed and like photographed and fingerprinted and shit for something that I didn't do that I know I didn't do thankfully in my case uh there obviously wasn't any evidence of anything and you know somebody came forward and 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 told the truth and they just decided that that they weren't gonna go any further with it because there wasn't any evidence so I got most of my money back from the lawyer but not all of it and uh and it made me like gun shy for the rest of my life as far as authority goes it's like you hold on to that shit and then you watch the show making a murderer you know and i i know they weren't trying to slant it in steve avery's favor but it's just it's hard to look past one of the glaring facts in the in the documentary that so when he he starts suing the police department and he starts making them look like fools and the governor's like shaking his hand he's taking pictures with people and and he's talking all this shit about the police and and how corrupt they are and how they fucked up his life which they did don't get me wrong he served 18 years for a crime that he did not commit i mean he was completely exonerated of it and some of the people that were involved with that initial case, even after he was exonerated, 
and the the correct person that committed the crime was charged with it, they still wouldn't admit to it. Like, some of the people were on the stand, like, well, that's what you say, allegedly. Like, they don't, like, acknowledge the fact that, that he was exonerated of it. And... It's just such a weird story because it's like a lot of my questions from the documentary was like, some you know some people think the worst that like they they somebody told them that this lady was on his property like taking pictures for Auto Trader, and then those two cops Link and Colburn murdered her and like burnt her body and like did all this shit to frame him which I don't think that that's just a completely ridiculous story I doubt that uh is it possible that somebody murdered uh Teresa and then saw all of this news coverage about Steve Avery and his problems with the police and thought to themselves like this is this is like the perfect crime to get away with this is you know I'll park her car on his land and then uh, I'll you know toss the bones around his property and bing bang boom like here goes this guy to jail for the crime that you committed And I think Steve Avery's lawyer said it best, like, I don't think the police, you know, in reference to the the car key and the blood in the car, like, I don't think they were thinking to themselves that they were framing an innocent man. I think that they were thinking, we have to make sure that this sticks because this guy, in their eyes, was like a sicko. And so they they planted the key in the blood just to make sure that he would go away for life, you know. And the key was an interesting thing to me. I don't know if you caught that when they said that the only DNA that you found on the key was Steve Avery's. Like, there wasn't any of Teresa's DNA on it, which is fucking insane. Like, I fiddle with my keys so much... And I use them to, like, pick my nails and, like, open shit. And it's just inconceivable that there wouldn't be one cell of DNA from Teresa on those keys if it wasn't wiped down and they put Steve's DNA on it. I mean, it's just, like... And I don't know if you were like me when they went to look at the 1985 evidence and they take that box and it's obvious that the evidence tape has been... Uh, sliced open and scotch taped back together which I thought in and of itself was like holy shit this is the smoking gun and then to see them open the case and in the top of the tube was a syringe hole I was like you have got to be fucking kidding me man like you know three point shot call it a day And that prosecutor, I don't know what it was about him, but I fucking hated his guts through this entire documentary. He was like this little soft-spoken guy who was just a real, like, douche. And such a crybaby in the the courtroom. He would just, like, 
yell out these little extra jabs at the end. And the whole fucking press conference after they arrested Brandon Dassey and he gave that uh, confession, I've never seen something like that in my entire life. Where the trial hasn't even started, and here's the prosecuting attorney on television, like, telling what he feels is like the gospel like this is what this is what happened this is how the murder took place and he's saying it in like graphic detail on the news how is that not going to sway people you know and I don't know about you but in that that 10th episode uh, like the 35 minute mark where they tell him tell us that he got he got mixed up in this uh, sexting scandal. I could not have laughed harder in my entire life. I was like, what a fall from grace. Like, And those text messages were so douchey. Like, I'm the lead prosecutor, baby. I make $300,000. I got the cars and the houses. I'm the catch, you know? And all these other ladies came forward about his misconduct and everything. It's like... It's pretty obvious he'd be that kind of guy with his glasses and tiny weirdo mustache. He would be somebody that would get involved in a sexting scandal, you know. And God, man, watching those videos of them coercing Brandon Dassey is like the hardest thing in the world to watch. Especially that one, like, I didn't catch on to that initially. That the guy with the glasses and the mustache that had all those pictures laid out with the ribbon and everything and and he was getting him to like write the story and then draw the pictures I didn't realize he was working for him like I thought that was like an investigator that was like coercing more of a confession out of him uh, up until that like 10th episode where they were trying to go through the appeals court and shit that, uh, that he was working for him I was like, what? And that whole stupid thing with the ribbon, he just kept crying about the ribbon. I was like, <coughs> it just made me think of Seinfeld, where he's like, put the ribbon on. I was like, what the fuck is going on? Why is he crying so much? I mean, unless he knew Teresa personally or something. But even then, shouldn't he recuse himself as part of the defense team? Oh, and that Len guy that got hired as Brandon's lawyer. What a douche that guy was. He didn't even go and see him. He's just doing all these press conferences for his client. And he's trying to force him to, to take the deal and force him to, like, confess to the whole thing. And I mean, granted, I will say it's a little weird that he wouldn't come up with all this stuff, like, off the top of his head and why he would why he would even say that kind of stuff but it was just like where that one guy in the interrogation he's like what what did he do to, what did he do to his her head brandon what what happened to the head and he's like he punched it he's like no no what did he do to the head it was like what the fuck he cut her hair I'm like no come on you know what he did to the hair and he just wouldn't fucking say it. And then the guy's like, it's like the worst game of charades ever. He's like, who shot her in the head, Brandon? And then he's like, Steven did. 
I mean, and I, I don't know if it's, it's like protocol or the way things go. Like, I don't know exactly how the justice system works, but it, it seems kind of weird for the judges that decided on the case to be the same judges that were deciding on the appeals. It's like, obviously, they're going to turn it down. They're not going to overturn their own thing. Like, that seems like a conflict of interest. But uh, back to the investigation, I mean, the whole fact that the crime happened in a different county and here come these two guys that were named in the original lawsuit fucking poking around his house and his garage being supervised by the other police supervised why the fuck are they in there anyways they shouldn't even be a part of it and man what a crazy bombshell to find out that the sheriff in charge of the whole thing was like the uh, arresting officer that arrested him initially like whoa that was fucking crazy and that sketch artist guy was making me laugh so fucking hard because he was such a douchebag. I mean, it was fucking obvious that he drew the picture from the mugshot, and he's really and and he fucking framed it and put it in his office like this big fucking trophy of putting Steve Avery away for eighteen years for rape. He framed it and put it on his wall as if to say, "There it is." That's when I framed an innocent man. There it is. And he just would not agree to the fact that uh, Steve was innocent and exonerated of the first. He just would not get on board with that. But the fact that Brendan's lawyer and the investigator were working together with the prosecutors of Steve Avery's case, I don't know how that in and of itself did not get him a new trial. It just seems insane. And the fact that they came up with this new test on how to find out if there's EDT in in the blood sample, which is the preservative on the blood. They're like, it's going to take eight months. And then they're like, I guess it only took six days. No one found that suspicious at all? Oh, God. I I was getting so pissed off at them, like, fucking with his girlfriend. But I was even more pissed at her, like, stop drinking, for Christ's sakes. You're on the police's radar. I mean, she even said in the documentary, she's like, I'm not supposed to drink, but I had two drinks like an hour ago. Like, shut the fuck up. What are you doing? Oh, my God. It was just such a such a crazy, crazy story, and it's just heartbreaking. Like... Who knows if he's innocent? I believe he's innocent. I mean, but it's hard to get past a few of the things, like the bones on his property and uh, that kind of shit. But so the case, the case is kind of over now, and and you don't get too far into the future as far as the last episode goes. And of course, since I finished the episode, I've just been online, just feverishly like reading everything that I possibly can. There's a a huge story about how uh, the hacker group Anonymous 
is trying to help uh, Steve Avery and Brendan because they one of their things is police corruption that they fight against. And apparently they were saying that they had phone records that when uh, whatever that guy's name, uh, Calumet or, or Callahan, the one guy that was with Link found the RAV4, he immediately called uh, Sergeant Link. And Link's name is like on every fucking thing. And the the phone call too where he's like calling out the license plate and she says that's uh, registered to a lady who's missing. And then he goes 99 RAV4. Like he's staring at the car with the license plate. So Anonymous had said that they were, they uncovered the phone records that showed uh, Callahan or whatever the guy's name was calling Link uh, right around the time that he found the car. And I don't know if they've released that just yet, but uh, as far as Stephen Avery's case, like he's still. He's still trying his best to fight it, but they've turned down, like, his appeals and the Supreme Court turned it down, so barring any, like, brand new earth-shaking evidence, like, he's done, like, he's, he's in prison for the rest of his life. Thankfully, with Brendan's case, um, they are in federal court right now, arguing the fact that his constitutional rights were obliterated by not getting a, uh, a lawyer that was working for him instead of or his, his best interests. And then, uh, what was the other thing that, was, uh, that I read up on? Ah, shit. I can't remember it now, but, uh, yeah, I mean... Barring anything drastic, like, I think Stephen Avery is pretty much, uh, he's pretty much in there now, and, and he's not gonna be getting out, it's just, like, when you watch that documentary, it's, just like, so heartbreaking to watch what it's doing to his family and his mom and his dad, I mean, can you even imagine, like, waiting for your son, who's falsely in prison for 18 years, get out, and it's, like, this amazing time and just so much excitement in this lawsuit and he gets this bill passed in the legislature and and then boom like he's fucking a suspect in a murder and they block off his property for like 18 days and they search it just constantly and then one guy were like with the key they came in he's like I didn't see the key and then and then the key was there. It was like, what the fuck? So many inconsistencies. So many weird shit going on. But I think the big thing about it, like, when you get finished with those ten episodes and you're just kind of... kind of stewing in it and sitting on it. I think the big thing is... This could happen to anybody. It really could. Oh, the other thing that I read was that it was proven in the end that three of the jurors that were deciding the case of Steve Avery, one of them was uh, the wife 
of somebody that worked at the police off uh, the police station. There was a guy who was like the brother of a police officer. Anyways, there's like three of them that had a connection to the Manitowoc Police Department. A pretty obvious link. And the fact that they didn't get dismissed off the off the jury was surprising. And the whole like one juror that had to leave because of a family emergency it was like, holy fuck. Like if I was Steve Avery, I would have been like mistrial done, let's do this over again. Like you throw this new person in, you know, they got kind of a new vibe or you know, they they may be one of the people that decided years and and months ago that he's guilty, he needs to go to jail and that's it. But it's just like they put all this shit on television. And they just, like, corrupted people's brains as far as this goes. And the fact that they were taping, like, everything and putting it on the news, it was just just hard to watch, you know? Because you're just, like... You know, we shouldn't live in a society where we fear that, like, one misstep and somebody could prosecute us for a crime that we didn't commit... And they can present the case in such a way that it sticks, you know, and now you can't get out of jail. It's terrifying, man. You know, this guy's already spent like 28 years of his life behind bars. And the first, you know, it's such a back and forth. Like the first one, it turned out that he, that, I don't know if he was framed, but, like, he didn't commit the crime 100%. And now he's been accused of a horrendous murder. And the the graphic details of it from the DA on the news where they're like, don't turn this on. If you got kids in the room, send them out. He's just, like, recounting this horrible thing about stabbing it or your guts out and choking her and shooting her. And it's like... They had some evidence, but nothing that pointed directly to any of this storyline. But anyways, it was just uh, a really good documentary and, and so cool to watch. Stories where it's like this rich storyline and it's kind of a whodunit and all this kind of stuff. And it was just really good. I liked it a lot. And uh, yeah, so... You can always get this podcast at Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher. Uh, Check out my website, largedrunkman.com, for upcoming dates. And tune in next time when we talk about who knows. So a few after-the-credit notes... Uh, As far as this case goes, I know a lot of people, after you got done watching Making a Murderer, you went to the internet and started searching like I did to find out uh, what exactly is going on now. A couple good points, a couple bad points. Uh, Apparently, Brian Dassey's case is being looked at uh, in federal court as far as the uh, idea that he wasn't being represented correctly which is one of our uh, constitutional rights is to have competent counsel 
And as you saw in like episode 10, uh, he wasn't really that, uh, his, his initial counsel was working with the prosecution to kind of make, uh, Brian Dassey a, uh, a witness against Steve Avery and he really didn't have his best interest at heart. And, uh, so that's what kind of got them into federal court on constitutional charges that he wasn't being represented correctly. So, I mean, that's, that's some good news that at least his case is getting a little bit more traction. Of course, is Steve's case obviously is not, um, unless some new evidence comes along, um, his case is going to pretty much be dead. So some of the, uh, biggest things that have come out, uh, recently, uh, I think the most recent piece of information I saw was uh, that one of the jurors came forward and said that they believe that Steve Avery was framed, and they came back with the guilty verdict because they were scared for their own personal safety against the Manitowoc Police Department, which is really crazy. And it also explains why they did a split decision on the charges that they found him guilty on the murder charge, but not on the mutilating a corpse. The one juror said that they did that in hopes that that would show that they were kind of indifferent and that maybe uh, it would help him get an appeal and they wouldn't have to deal with it. But of course it had, you know, it backfired, you know, he never got any kind of an appeals or anything like that. So that was a big point. And then the other big point in his favor is, uh, that it came out that two of the jurors uh, had connections to the Manitowoc County and Police Department, that uh, one of the jurors was a father of a, uh, a sergeant or somebody in the Manitowoc Police Department, and then there was another juror who was the wife of the county clerk, I guess, which is absolutely ridiculous. Uh, I don't know how that got through. Um, and lastly, the big article that came out was uh, Kevin Kratz, you know, the, uh, the helium-voiced weirdo that ended up getting pinched on uh, sexting one of his clients. He did an interview with People Magazine, and he laid out a bunch of points that they didn't cover in the documentary that he says shows that Stephen Avery is guilty. And these are the points that he laid out was that... Uh, Avery's past incident with the cat where uh, apparently he doused a cat in gasoline and lit it on fire that uh, he wasn't goofing around he actually wanted to watch the cat suffer was one point another point was that Avery targeted Teresa that on the 31st he called Auto Trader magazine and asked them to send them that same girl that was here last time on the 10th Teresa had been to the Avery property on the 10th and Steve answered the door wearing a towel and she said that she would not go back because she was scared of him, obviously. Avery used a fake name and a number, uh, his sister's number, to get uh, her to come back out there. But, you know, that's weird to me because I'm like, wouldn't she realize that it's the same address that she's been coming to? But that's one of his big points. Another one is that Teresa's phone camera and PDA were found 20 feet from his door burned in a barrel. And why did the documentary not tell viewers the contents of her purse were in the burn barrel just north of the front door of his trailer? 
But I feel like if somebody's going to plant the body there, they're obviously going to plant the rest of the evidence there, too. So that doesn't say much. Um, while in prison, Avery told another inmate that he intended to build a torture chamber so he could rape, torture, and kill young women when he was released. He even drew a diagram. Another inmate was told by Avery that the way to get rid of a body is to burn it because heat destroys DNA. Uh, whether that's all, who knows, you know, was, um, the next point was that the victim's bones were found in the fire pit, uh, with steel belts left over from car tires. Avery threw car tires to burn, described by Dassey, that was where her bones were burned, suggesting that some human bones found elsewhere, uh, were from the murder were never established, so basically saying that the bones were mixed in with tires and it would be hard to replicate that. Also found in the fire pit was Teresa's tooth, ID'd through dental records, a rivet from the Daisy Fuentes jeans that she was wearing uh, that day, and tools used uh, by Avery to chop up the bones during the fire. Another point was that phone records show the three calls from Avery's uh, to Teresa's cell phone October 31. Uh, Avery used star 69 feature to block himself. Both calls were placed before she arrived and the last call at 4.35 p.m. without the star 69 feature. Avery first believes he can simply say she never showed up. Um, so he tries to establish an alibi after she's already been there, hence the 4.35 call. She'll never answer, of course, so he doesn't need to star 69 feature on that last call. Uh, Avery's DNA was found on the, the hood latch, uh, basically sweat. Uh, the crime lab found DNA under the hood. Um, do the cops have a vial of Avery's sweat to paint under the hood? But, I mean, maybe they have a shirt that has sweat on it, who knows. Uh, ballistics say that the bullet found in the garage was fired by Avery's rifle, which was in police evidence locker since 11-6. If the cops planted the bullet, how did they get one fired from his gun? This rifle hanging over Avery's bed is the source of the bullet found in the garage with Teresa's DNA on it, the bullet had to be fired before 11.5. Did the cops borrow the gun, fire a bullet, recover the bullet before planting the SUV, then hanging uh, the bullet for four months and kid, they needed to plant it four months later. Listen, you know, I, I get all this stuff that he's saying and, and it wasn't a part of the, the documentary, but who knows, man. I mean, in... He may have done it, he may not have done it. I think the point of the whole situation is a lot of shady shit went down. And in any other scenario, the amount of shady shit that went down, someone would at least uh, get another trial. But apparently there's a also a petition you can go and sign that's got over 90,000 names for President Obama to pardon him because uh, the governor of Wisconsin's already said no, so... Go sign it. Keep reading. Apparently they're going to make a second season and, and follow all the updates, which I'll be excited to see. Um, but yeah, that uh, that's the updates. And I uh, hope you enjoyed this episode.